The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Attack everything. Major Leno Hawker, VC, DSO, British Royal Flying Corps. Killed in action, November 23rd, 1916. Our airmen have failed us completely. From a report by the German Erste Bataillon Infanterie Regiment 29, September, the Somme, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 27, Psalm Pirouettes over Picardy. Many thanks to the recent donations, reviews, and emails. As always, they are gratefully and humbly received. In the past several weeks, the BFWWP has received a real surge in reviews on iTunes and I have to say, it is just awesome. So to keep this surge going, I'd like to make a request, if I may. Let's get the Battles of the First World War podcast up to 100 reviews on iTunes. I'm really going to need your help on this one. We are pretty close. And again, if you're an iPhone owner and have that new iOS 11 update, it really is easier than ever to provide a quick starred review. So if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving a quick review uh, on iTunes. So getting the BFWWP to 100 reviews would, seriously, it would just be wicked cool. Okay, a couple of small admin notes. Um, For listener Tigers Tim, those two names you sent me way back when, uh, they are pronounced Market Wheaton and Keys College. That second one, good Lord, I don't see how it's pronounced that way, but I'm not going to argue. I'm just going to take it as it is. Okay, this episode will cover the air battle over the Somme during the summer and fall of 1916. Uh, As I've said before, I feel I've been rather neglectful of the air war thus far, so I hope this episode is a worthy effort. The story of World War I pilots is unbelievably fascinating once you get into it, Uh, so my neglect uh, is the product of my bias towards uh, the ground pounders. But I've got to say, and this goes on the record, If we're talking ground over air battle films, The Beast, starring a young Jason Patrick and George DeZunza, is a vastly 
better film than that Top Gun flick with the, the guy and the girl and the cheesy song. So there you go. There's my bias. All right. Back to the trenches. This time, let's wipe the mud from our eyes and look up. While the titanic clash of arms during the summer and now autumn of 1916 shuddered, shook, and scoured the Picardy farmland as thousands of men drowned in an ocean of blood and fire, a different struggle was taking place in the heavens above. It was a battle of individual men in flying machines, jousting in a deadly contest for control of the air. Sometimes clashes would be man against man, or it would be that of small groups of British, French, and German pilots soaring, swerving, diving toward or away from each other, all the while machine guns blazing. But the much smaller numbers of men engaged in this battle space belied the established and ever-expanding importance of the new terrain they were fighting over. When the Great War began in that terrible summer of 1914, the airplane was a very new tool to the militaries of the Entente and Central Powers. Remember, it was just barely 11 years prior when two Americans had launched themselves into history and human achievement at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. That being said, on the Western Front, the British, French, and Germans went to war with early air arms already established in their militaries. Skeptics were everywhere during the early years of the airplane, and military skeptics looked at planes as less than useful, time and resource-wasting novelties. Douglas Haig was one of those critics, stating that these new machines would never eclipse the cavalry horse for scouting missions. While not all were convinced, the airplane and its great potential were soundly demonstrated during the fighting that led to the first great victories of the Entente in August and September of 1914. It was the Royal Flying Corps, a two-year-old branch assigned under the Royal Engineers, that saw and reported to British ground forces at Mont that they were being surrounded by the oncoming Germans. It was the same RFC, working with the French Aeronautique Militaire, that flew over and identified German General von Kluck's first army making its fateful and fatal wheeling movement that would leave it exposed to a shattering hammer blow. Based on the observations made by the British and French pilots, ground commanders made decisions that saved Paris and the Allied troops from defeat by the Germans. From here, the Royal Flying Corps and its pilots continually dis demonstrated new and soon indispensable capabilities as the war carried on. Working together with the French, the two allies worked to share information and best practices to make each other more effective fighting forces. As an American who lately realized, like within the last 10 years, that the French and British largely hated each other for centuries, this last development 
is nothing short of astounding. Before the Battle of Neuve Chapelle in March of 1915, pilots flew observation missions where they photographed the entire attack sector. Their aerial photography led to the creation of accurate maps for both the attacking infantry and artillery, and the solid information on where the German lines and positions were led to an effective bombardment that tore open a smoking hole in the enemy line. A second development of the Neuve Chapelle battle was that of contact patrols conducted by pilots as well. These patrols were low-level flights where the pilots visually located the attacking troops and reported their positions back to ground commanders, a brand new tool with which to burn away some of the fog of war. Third development of air power at Neuve Chapelle was one that was also taking place elsewhere on the Western Front. Pilots were observing and helping direct artillery fire. The ability to now provide a faster shelling response to bog down troops in the field was a game changer. And the wireless signals sent by RFC pilots greatly assisted in the initial British breakthrough at Neuve Chapelle. To oversimplify and sum up the three main powers slaughtering each other in France and Flanders, it was the French who really had it going on. They already had a well-established air service in 1914, and French pilots were known to be innovative, motivated, and brave to the point of recklessness. The British Royal Flying Corps was right behind them with a similar spirit of innovation and of developing the potential of the airplane over the battlefield. And it was especially more so when Brigadier General Hugh Trenchard took over as commanding officer of the RFC in September 1915. Surprisingly, it was the Germans who tended to lag behind with their Fliegertruppen des Deutsches Kaiserreich, in English, the Imperial German Flying Corps. Generally outnumbered on the Western Front, the Germans tended to act timidly in the air as a whole. This is not to say they were irresponsibly ignorant of air power, but it was almost like they didn't know what to do with it. Some examples will follow. With General Trenchard taking over the RFC, the goals and mission of that nascent organization began to gel around a central theme. Trenchard, described by then Lieutenant Colonel Bradbeer, U.S. Army, in his master's thesis titled The Battle for Air Supremacy Over the Somme, 1 June through 30 November 1916, was, quote, Brilliant, dynamic, intolerant of failure, but also inarticulate. And he had an air of charisma that overcame his shortcomings, end quote. This charisma is supported by Cecil Lewis in his memoir, Sagittarius Rising, where he describes a visit by Boom Trenchard, as the general was known, to his pilots on the night before the Battle of the Somme began. Quote, Boom infused men's enthusiasm without effort by a certain greatness of heart 
that made him not so much our superior in rank as in personality. When he left, we were all sure that victory was certain, that the line would be broken, the cavalry put through, and the Allies sweep on to Berlin." End quote. General Trenchard was a hard charger, and he was determined to give BEF Commander General Sir Douglas Haig whatever he needed to achieve success. He came on at a time when the Germans were throwing the Allies back in the air with their new Fokker Eindecker planes, vastly more maneuverable machines than the British Vickers FB-5 gun bus. The Germans, in an example of their timidity, by not fully realizing the potential of their incredible flying machine, were largely sweeping their foes from the sky in what was known in the fall of 1915 as the Fokker Scourge. Men like Oswald Bolke and Max Immelmann were out in the air, literally creating brand new air tactics that were changing the ever-developing world of air forces and air combat. But they did not seek to take aggressive control of the sky. Trenchard, with the help of his staff officer, Major Morris Baring, began to put his strategy to work, especially in the first months of 1916 with the operational plans for the Somme now in place following the Chantilly Conference. To the RFC's new commander, this strategy was owning the air, total air supremacy. Again, to quote then-Lieutenant Colonel Bradbeer's thesis, air supremacy was, quote, a state of moral and material superiority over the enemy, which would prevent him from seriously interfering with hostile air operations and at the same time deny him the successful use of his own air assets, end quote. The Fokker scourge had to be eliminated, as well as any belief the Germans had that they held the upper hand in the skies over France and Belgium. Trenchard had his squadrons get after it by going on the attack and by flying in protective flight formations that discouraged German pilots from attacking. With the new attack strategy, flight formations, and the introduction of the more maneuverable DH-2 and FE-2B airplanes, the Royal Flying Corps stretched itself to the limit through the spring of 1916. Pilots were steadily worn out as they were constantly flying on missions. Casualties increased, airplane losses mounted, and Zeppelin raids back in Blighty went poorly answered in politicians' minds. Trenchard did not care. In his mind, there was a massive job to be done, and that was, quote, to win freedom of movement for the reconnaissance, photographic, bombing, and artillery airplanes in their essential tasks of helping the army overcome their enemy and to deny similar freedom to the opposing air service, end quote. It was the only way to prep for the coming big push on the Somme. An event 
out of the Allies' control, began to change things on the entire Western Front. The German 5th Army's attack at Verdun. The Fliegertruppen had begun moving squadrons down to the Verdun area as the February attack date drew nearer. And with the start of the battle there, that was where the German effort went. The French had to do the same. And in another act of reinforcing the inter-allied sharing of information and technology, General Trenchard sent any and all available supplies to support his allies. Machine guns, bullets, spare parts, etc. This push came from a belief that the battle over Verdun was just an extension of his own battle to win air supremacy. At Verdun, the French air service began to use Trenchard's suggested tactics. They paid off, as within the first weeks of the battle, the French had gained control of the skies over that hellish death ground. On the other side, the Germans wore themselves out trying to deny their airspace to the enemy, filling the sky over their lines with airplanes, but not using them to attack. In an example of not knowing what to do with their air power, a German general was asked many years afterward why visible and undefended crossroads behind French lines had never been bombed or raked with machine guns. He looked perplexed and replied to the effect of, huh, we just never thought about an option like that. Go figure. Trenchard used the German focus on Verdun to his advantage as much as he could, with more maneuverable planes coming in, but also deciding to fight with what he had available. The general had his pilots go on the attack. Aggression was encouraged. British pilots constantly crossed the lines into German-occupied airspace to do their fighting. They fought in formations and fairly chased after Germans, prowling the skies for them and engaging in combat at almost any opportunity. It was by no means a bloodless or lopsided victory. Between February in April of 1916, the Royal Flying Corps took down 42 German planes. This score cost the RFC 32 planes of its own. Attrition wasn't just in the trenches, it was in the sky as well. Combat in the air was as chaotic and deadly as it was anywhere else. It was also breathtaking in the stunts required to be performed to both engage and survive. Lieutenant Alan Dorr and 2nd Lieutenant FCA Wright of 13 Squadron encountered German LVG reconnaissance planes while on artillery observation duty. Quote, Left at 6.45 to do artillery. Gloriously fine. Wright, my pilot, at 9.30 a.m., saw a cloud of anti-aircraft shells bursting behind our lines. I signaled to my pilot to go in the direction of it. Suddenly, two LVGs emerged. We turned and dived from 9,500 feet. The machine seemed almost vertical, and the rush of wind terrific. 
When we were about 200 feet above, I opened fire on the leading machine. Saw the tracer bullets go all around it. We were now all still diving like mad. We to get over the line, they to get away. I put another drum into the second machine as both disappeared beneath our wings. Only one emerged, which we chased over our trenches. On coming down, we heard that one had fallen near Mount Saint-Éloi, both pilot and observer being killed. It was all over in a few seconds. So infinitely fast do things happen in these fights. End quote. Lieutenant Dorr went to see the bodies of the men he had killed. He said, I go to Marui to see the bodies of the two fallen Huns, not out of morbid curiosity, but to find out where they are hit with bullets and fix their burial place. Two bullet holes are discovered in the officer. A pitiful sight. It is war, though, and I must have no regrets. I am allowed to keep the pilot's helmet as a trophy. The tide most definitely turned against the Germans. They may have been outnumbered by inferior British machines, but their Fokker Eindecker was an outstanding piece of work for the salient fact that it had an interrupter gear that let the pilot fire his machine gun between his propeller blades. This was revolutionary. But the British finally developed the interrupter gear on their own. And in April 1916, the Sopwith 1.5 Strutter aircraft appeared on the scene with that vital piece of technology. By May, the Fokker Scourge was over, and the RFC began to receive more and more aircraft. Losses remained high to the point where, on average, 10 new pilots were assigned to the squadrons weekly, and this barely kept up with the pace. On average, an RFC pilot's lifespan was measured in weeks, and many times those weeks were counted with the fingers of one hand. By June, the Royal Flying Corps could assuredly claim air supremacy. On the 18th, the German ace Max Immelmann, known as the Eagle of Lille, was killed by a crew from Number 25 Squadron. This was a devastating blow to the German air service, and as a result, the great Oswald Bolke was grounded on orders of the Kaiser himself. The Germans couldn't stand to potentially lose another ace. After Imamon's death, the German presence in the air was almost non-existent, and in the following weeks, the RFC operated with near impunity. During the air offensive, the Royal Flying Corps made sure its pilots were engaging in all of the six missions assigned to the organization. One mission could not be dropped just because more effort had to be made for another. We have covered most of them here already, but to review these missions were aerial reconnaissance, aerial photography, observing and directing artillery, bombing, contact patrols, and air combat against the Germans. Of course, combat was dangerous, but so were the other missions. In fact, doing anything 
and the aircraft of the day was inherently dangerous to life and limb. Take aerial photography, for example. You might think flying over the enemy trench lines to take pictures of them, braving Archie, as anti-aircraft fire was known, would be dangerous, and it surely was. But the act of taking the pictures themselves was nearly as dangerous. Cecil Lewis, 17 when he joined the RFC, and all of 18 when he was flying over the Somme, was assigned photo duty in a squadron that had BE-2C planes, of which he said, if there was ever an airplane unsuited for active service, it was the BE-2C. The plane had an awkward setup that left it hard to defend and largely hard to use. Here is Lewis on taking aerial photographs. Quote, The observer could not operate the camera from his seat because of the plane directly below him. So it was clamped on outside the fuselage, beside the pilot, a big, square, shiny mahogany box with a handle on top to change the plates. Yes, plates. To make an exposure, you pulled a ring on the end of a cord. To sight it, you leaned over the side and looked through a ball and crosswire finder. The pilot then had to fly the machine with his left hand, get over the spot on the ground he wanted to photograph. Not so easy as you might think. Put his arm out into the 70 mile an hour wind and push the camera handle back and forward to change the plates, pulling the string between each operation. Photography in 1916 was somewhat amateurish, end quote. With such a dangerous job and death always lurking nearby, many pilots lost their nerve and had to be transferred back to England. Others died dining for breakfast with their mates and then being killed just an hour or two later, leaving an empty chair when survivors met for dinner later that day. Knowing life was short, British pilots were as wild as their French and American peers. Any free time was taking up with drinking, eating, and chasing women. Amiens was where the most pilots in the Somme area went when on pass. With the 1st of July, in the beginning of the Battle of the Somme, the men of the Royal Flying Corps and French Aeronautique Militaire were masters of the sky. Major Leno Hawker's quote at the top of the episode is very telling of the Entente mindset at the onset of the massive offensive. And it also indicates that who knew they were boss on the battlefront. If it could be seen, it could be attacked. Through July and all the way into September, RFC and French pilots buzzed through the sky, performing their now very important duty of artillery observation and direction as the guns endlessly bucked against the earth around them and unleashed flame. Added in were bombing and strafing runs as well. Pilots, would fly low and pour machine gun fire on any German troops found in the open. Bombing 
grew in importance as the RFC began bombing enemy airfields, road junctions, railroad junctions and depots, assembly areas, and basically anything that seemed worth a bomb toss. Even German General von Beloff's headquarters was intentionally targeted. And this was how bombing was done. Many pilot observer teams literally carried bombs in their laps until they judged they were in the dropping zone. Once there, they then leaned over the side and dropped their bombs. 13,000 bombs were dropped between the 1st and the 5th of July alone. It wasn't very accurate. Sometimes there were lucky hits, but it served to show German soldiers that they were never safe, and it shook up their morale while painting a picture that the Entente was increasingly invulnerable. In July, the German 22nd Reserve Division reported that, quote, enemy aircraft possessed unlimited command of the air. With extraordinary daring, they overflew our infantry and artillery positions at very low heights, two to 300 meters, in all weather, even rain, taking no notice of infantry fire, took their photographs, and directed the fire of their artillery, end quote. A month later, with the situation unimproved, the German 16th Infantry Division said that, quote, cooperation between the English aircraft and their infantry and artillery was exemplary. The English aircraft not only directed the artillery fire on discovered batteries, dugouts, and occupied trenches, they killed any personnel who showed themselves in the trenches with aimed machine gun fire and threw bombs and hand grenades at batteries and dugouts from low levels, end quote. This was the beginning of that modern doctrine that we today call close air support. In 1916, it was all brand new. British and French pilots' assuredness of air supremacy began to take a hit after the Battle of Flair Corselet, and this was a direct result of the German Fifth Army's complete defensive posture at Verdun. This also coincided with the takeover of the German side of the Western Front by Generals von Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Aircraft began to be transferred from Verdun to the Somme battlefront. There were two major additions being made to the German air service units on the Somme. First was that of the new Albatross D-1 fighter, a one-seat plane that featured a World War I era radical upgunning to not one, but two forward-facing machine guns that fired through the propellers. An entire squadron named Jagdstaffel Zwei or Hunting Squadron 2, came to the Somme, outfitted with the Albatross. The second addition was that Yasta Svai, as the unit was called, was commanded by none other than Hauptmann Oswald Bolke himself. The Germans were bringing their A-game 
to the air battle now. Bolka was on the scene in the first week of September, and as he set about trying to turn back the Entente air powers by himself, he recounted his combat with RFC Lieutenant Anan Bowen and Lieutenant R.M. Stalker. Quote, I got to grips over Flair. The fight did not last long, as these machines are almost defenseless against a skilled single-seater. I got onto the Vickers obliquely from behind. That is the best position. If you attack him directly from behind, his engine protects him like a thick armored belt. He tried in vain to wriggle out of the situation. Soon, his machine took fire. My attack brought me so near to him that his explosion splashed my machine with the oil that ran out. The machine then went down in spirals, throwing its occupant out, and was completely consumed by the flames." End quote. Another member of Yasta Tsvai was a brand new pilot who had recently transferred from the cavalry. His name was Manfred von Richthofen. In due time, he would be known as the Red Baron. The RFC noticed the change on September 17th when Bolka and his fighters shot six out of 12 British planes returning from a bombing mission. The surviving planes only made it back through the intervention of another RFC squadron that came none too soon. Between that dogfight on the 17th and the 30th, Yasta Tsvai took down another 18 RFC planes while losing only three of their own. This was bad. The German Fliegertruppen des Deutschen Kaiserreich underwent significant administrative changes over the next weeks, culminating in its transition to becoming the Luftstreitkräfte, which means Air Force. At the same time, Bolke was literally writing the rules for the German Air Force and how it was to fight. The Dichte Bolke were Bolke's lessons for air-to-air -air combat, with basic but common sense maxims like always try to secure an advantageous position before attacking and never turn your back on an enemy fighter. Face him with your machine guns. Bolka's words were timeless and one war later, pilots of the Luftwaffe would be well versed in them as well. For this episode, we are going to push forward all the way to the end of the Battle of the Somme in the air. No worries, the ground war will be covered thoroughly in at least two more episodes, although we are finally approaching the end of this massive battle. By the end of September, Trenchard and his pilots could feel the definite change in the Germans. The RFC had nothing that could match the Albatross, but Trenchard begged for new planes anyway. By late October, the Luftstreitkräfte had taken the RFC's local air superiority away, 
and German pilots moved to prevent the RFC from carrying out its other jobs, like artillery spotting. RFC Lieutenant Gwilym Lewis noted that the good days of July and August, when two or three DHs used to push half a dozen Huns onto the chimney tops of Bapome, are no more. But the Germans' advantage was not to last. On October 28th, above the pulverized ruins of Pozier, two DH-2 planes were attacked by 11 albatross fighters. In the spirals, banks, and pirouettes over the shattered and waterlogged ground, two of the German planes collided, with one of those planes crashing shortly after and killing its pilot. The pilot was Oswald Bolka. Bolka's death was a stunning blow to the German Air Force. His death affected even his enemies, as days after learning of just who they had taken out, RFC pilots flew over Bolka's airbase and bombed it with funeral wreaths out of respect. Days after the great fighter captain's death, the British received a new squadron, kitted out with French Newport 17s, Sopwith one and a half strutters, and the new Sopwith Pup. Beginning in early November, this new squadron, made up of Royal Naval Air Service pilots and nicknamed Naval 8, was in the leaden skies over the Somme, shooting up any Germans they could find. As Naval 8 scoured the heavens, other units worked hard to carry out the other essential tasks of the RFC, namely observing and directing artillery for the cold, wet, and exhausted Tommies in the mud below. October had been a very wet month on the Somme, and November brought the same, but with more cold. Pilots flew into snow and sleet to support their fellow countrymen below and to show them that they were not alone. On the ground, as we will soon explore, conditions were simply appalling. When General Hubert Goff's Reserve Army, now redesignated as the British Fifth Army, finally clawed the ruins of Beaumont Amel away from the Germans in the middle of November, General Haig called a halt to all ground operations. The Battle of the Somme was over. In the air, the fighting continued, and on November 23rd, Royal Flying Corps Major Leno Hawker was killed after a 30-minute shootout that saw Hawker crash and die just 100 meters from BEF lines. He was killed by the then 23-year-old Leutnant Manfred von Richthofen, who was proud that he had taken out someone seen as the RFC's best pilot. Here is his recollection, as quoted from Lieutenant Colonel Bradbeer's thesis. Quote, My Englishman was a good sportsman, but by and by the thing became a little too hot for him. He had to decide whether he would land on German ground or whether he would fly back to the English lines. Of course, he tried the latter, 
after endeavoring in vain to escape me by looping and such tricks. At that time, my first bullets were flying around him, for so far neither of us had been able to do any shooting. When he had come down to about 300 feet, he tried to escape by flying in a zigzag course, which makes it difficult for an observer on the ground to shoot. That was my most favorable moment. I followed him at an altitude of from 250 to 100 feet, firing all the time. The Englishman could not help falling, but the jamming of my guns nearly robbed me of my success. My opponent fell shot through the head 150 feet behind our line, end quote. Hawker's death was a blow similar to that of Bolke's death to the Germans. But it was the onset of a brutal winter that brought a slowing of air operations on either side of no man's land. And with that, the air battle over the Somme petered out. It was an Allied victory. The British lost nearly 500 men killed, wounded, or missing during the nearly five-month-long slog through the Picardy farmlands, or rather, above it. But they and their French allies had ultimately maintained mastery of the air above the trenches. The German Air Force was a deadly opponent, capable of brilliant local and tactical victories. But the Entente would never lose air superiority throughout the rest of the war. Okay, so let's leave it there. Next time, we'll be back in the trenches, this time in a very wet and raw October 1916. Any questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or you can hit me up on the Twitter at at www1podcast. You can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, although, again, I am terrible uh, in particular on that front. Uh, Or you can also do the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Don't forget my request from the beginning of the episode. Let's get the BFWWP to 100 reviews on iTunes. Also, if you're interested and becoming a patron of the show, please head over to patreon.com slash battles of the first world war podcast. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. And we will talk to you again soon. Take care.